Good morning. Good morning. My name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. If it's your first time, we're so glad to have you with us. Uh, what we'll be doing over this next bit of time, we're going to be continuing a study that we began back in January through the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 15 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, some ushers uh, um, will be coming by and you can just put, put your hand up and they'll get one to you. They may be coming by. Now that I told them to come by, they'll be coming by. Here. Hey, thank you, Rick. Um, if you don't own a Bible, please keep this one. Please let it be yours, uh, but not just as a paperweight or a doorstop. Like, take it if you'll use it and read it. That We would love for you to have this as our gift to you. So last week, we were looking in uh, basically the majority of Acts chapter 13 and 14 at the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. We looked in chapter 11 at, at the church at Antioch and how the church of Antioch participated with the Holy Spirit in sending them out. And then as they moved through uh, Cyprus and Asia Minor, planning churches. Go ahead and put that map up for me real quick. This just will remind us of where we were. They started out in Antioch. They went through this island of Cyprus up into Asia Minor. And then by the time that they made it back home, even though many people, perhaps even most people, rejected the message of the gospel when Paul and Barnabas brought it, many believed. And in each one of those communities, there was a thriving, growing, new covenant community. A church planted, elders appointed, and the witness of Jesus was continuing to go forward through those places. Last week at the very end, in verse 27 of chapter 14, we read about how Paul and Barnabas ended up back in Antioch, and they gave a report to the believers back at the church in Antioch of all that God had done through them, and how God had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. What God had done in bringing these Gentiles who formerly had been separated from the covenant that God made with Israel, but he brought them into the family of God. But the inclusion of the Gentiles into the story, it generates a controversy that we read about in Acts chapter 15 over what does it mean for the Gentiles? What does it mean for non-Jewish people to be included into God's story? Look at uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Here's what happens. It says, But some men came down from Judea, from the area of Jerusalem, Jewish men, and they were teaching the brothers, the Gentile brothers, that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Hey, this is great that you believed in Jesus and all, and maybe you received the Holy Spirit, but if you don't circumcise yourself, or have someone else probably do it, that'd be maybe easier, um, you can't be saved. Paul and Barnabas are going, hold on a second here. I'm not so sure about this. And it says they had no small dissension and debate with them. And finally, they can't come to an agreement. They can't come to an understanding. So it says that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to discuss this matter, to consider this matter. This is what's called the Jerusalem Council, the first all-church council, when the leaders of the church in the various parts where the gospel would spread all get back together in Jerusalem to decide. And we see this throughout church history, different points, especially early on, when the leaders of the church would gather together to, to wrestle through complex theological issues or complex issues of the way that the church was going to function. 
And this is the first one. This is the only one that we see in the pages of Scripture. And they get together because they're trying to figure out what do we do with the Gentiles? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to keep the law of Moses? Is it necessary for salvation? Is it necessary for the Christian life? But this isn't just a question about what to do with the Gentiles. Ultimately, the underlying issue is what does the Old Covenant have to do with the New Covenant? How is what God is doing now connected to what God did before? Does that make sense? The question they're wrestling with is, okay, it's not, the, the, the question they're wrestling with is not that the Gentiles get included into the plan of God, because that was the point all along. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abraham and started this whole purpose for the, the Jewish people, he said the whole point was to bring blessing to all nations. We always knew this is where the story was going, but what they're wrestling with is, okay, the nations were going to be blessed, but how are they blessed? The nations were going to be included in the story, but how are they included? Do they have to become Jews in order to be included? If not, then what was the whole point of the law of Moses? Why did we have it in the first place? How is the new covenant related to the old covenant? How new is it? Did Jesus come to renew the old covenant or to bring about a different kind of covenant? And if so, in what ways is it different? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever been reading, like, maybe the book of Exodus or Deuteronomy, and you're reading through some of the laws that God gave to Israel and thought for a second, do I need to be doing that? Does this still apply to me? I don't know about you. I've wrestled with that a lot. The more times that you do read through the law, you go, okay, there's a lot in here that's really good. But was it for another time? Is it still for our time? How do you decide? And this is a really complex issue. The relationship between the Old Covenant and New Covenant is not a simple issue. It's a complex one. And so oftentimes the answer to that question of do I still need to do it is not just a clear yes or no. So my point this morning in walking us through this chapter is not just to give you like a crib sheet where you can just go, okay, based upon these criteria, yes or no. My point is to kind of, if I can, shape the conversation for you. Shape the discussion so that we can continue to have this discussion. What does the new covenant have to do with the old covenant? Let's see how this is what they're wrestling with in, in chapter 15. So look at verse 7. Everybody's together. All the movers and shakers are together. And just like Luke has done throughout his book, he doesn't give us every line of dialogue. He doesn't give us, this isn't a transcript of the official proceedings that went on. But Luke, knowing the decision that they reached at the end, he highlights what we need to know from this ongoing conversation. And he starts by looking at Peter, what Peter himself says. In verse 7, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that, my, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's calling their attention back to something that happened several years earlier that we, read, we learned about a couple weeks ago in Acts chapter 10. When Peter is sent to the house of Cornelius, the, the Roman centurion. Remember, Cornelius was a God-fearing Jew, and he'd been praying to God, and God had sent him an angel saying, go get this guy Peter. And Peter comes to his house, and he walks in and he goes, okay, this is really uncomfortable. You know that I'm not supposed to do this, but God gave me a vision of the sheet with all these animals and said I can eat all of it, but I'm realizing now that it wasn't just about what I can eat. It was about you guys. I shouldn't call you common or unclean. So here's the gospel. 
And he preaches the gospel to them. And before he even gets to the punchline, before he gets to the with every head bowed and with every eyes closed, like decision point, he hasn't even asked them to verbalize their faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit just drops on these people. He falls on them just like it happened with the believers at, in Pentecost in, in Acts chapter 2. And Peter's sitting there going, oh my gosh, they're included just like we were. If that's the case, let's baptize them. They're part of this thing. So he's calling their attention back in this conversation in Acts 15 going, remember how God first spoke through me and brought the Gentiles into this? Look what he says in verse 8. God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. He goes, why are you trying to make a distinction now and saying they have to become Jews? God made no distinction when he gave them the Spirit. And when God gave them his Holy Spirit, he didn't make them get circumcised first. So why would we make them do it now? Because even we, as uh, he's speaking as a Jewish believer, he's like, I don't feel like I stand right with God because of my circumcision or because I keep the law of Moses, but by grace, by God's grace, just like they will. Do you see there's a couple, there's a word that's repeated twice in verse 8 and in verse 9. God who knows the heart cleansed their hearts by faith. That idea of our hearts is the key to understanding the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In order to understand how the Law of Moses fits with what we're supposed to do now, how the Old Covenant fits with the New Covenant, we need to understand the relationship between the Law of Moses and the heart. Now, to illustrate that relationship for you, I'm going to show you a short video. A couple weeks ago, when we were, probably about a month or so ago, when we were looking at Stephen, I showed you guys a video from those, uh, a group called the Gospel, or the Bible Project, that illustrates how the temple was fulfilled, the purpose of the temple was fulfilled by Jesus. They put together another video showing how in the same way the purpose of the law has been fulfilled by Jesus. So if you will, we're going to take a couple minutes, turn your attention to the screen. We're familiar with the Ten Commandments in the Bible, stuff we generally take as good advice. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents, the list goes on. And those are just the first ten. There are actually a total of 613 commands, all given to ancient Israel, found in the first five books of the Bible, which in Hebrew are called the Torah. Now, the word Torah is usually translated in English as the law because it has all of these laws in it. And as you read through them, you wonder, am I supposed to obey some of these, all of these? I mean, what's the purpose of the law? Well, that translation is kind of confusing because while the Torah has laws in it, the book itself is fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others. And when Jesus taught about the Torah, he said that he was bringing that story to its fulfillment. So walk me through the story and how it's fulfilled. So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebels. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family, who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. And all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. And so some of the laws are about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. 
Okay, so the rest of the Torah is just the complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, no, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. Now pay attention, because you'll see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. Yeah, don't worship other gods, don't make idols. And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. And so Moses gives some more laws, and then you get more stories of rebellion. Some more laws, rebellion again, some more laws, more rebellion, and you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws, they're just going to continue to rebel. So at the conclusion of the Torah's story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. And he was right. I mean, the story goes on to recount Israel's total failure. They go into the land. They break all the laws. Right. Now, the next section of books in the Jewish tradition are the 15 books of the prophet, and they reflect back on the story. For example, Ezekiel, he said that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's spirit would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. And Jeremiah said that's when obedience to God's commands wouldn't feel like a duty, but they would be written deep in their hearts. And Isaiah he promised a future leader, Israel's Messiah, who will lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now, in Jewish tradition, all of these books together are called the prophets, even the historical books, because they're continuing the story told from the perspective of the prophets. Okay, so we have the law and the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, Israel, who it turns out needs a new heart. Yes, and Jesus saw himself as continuing that story. So he agreed with the law and the prophets when he taught that it's out of the human heart that come the most ugly parts of human nature. It's like the default setting of our hearts is opposed to God's law. But Jesus also said that he came to solve that problem, and in his words, to fulfill the law. So what does he mean there, to fulfill the law? Well, first he said that the demand of all of the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command, that we are to love God and to love others. So that seems pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. Well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. So he quotes the law, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. But then he also says that when you treat someone with disrespect or when you nurse resentment against them, you're also violating God's moral ideal because you're not treating that person with love. And so Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our own enemies. So even though this command seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God to love others. And that's kind of a downer. But where Israel failed, Jesus brought this story to its fulfillment. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others, and he showed all of the nations what God is truly like. He did this through his acts of compassion and mercy, and ultimately by loving his enemies even unto death. And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's Spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. So this fulfills the story of the law and the prophets. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law.
cool. Was that helpful? You see, I love the way that they show that connection between the law and the heart. That the law was good, but the hearts of the people of Israel were not, just like everybody else. And the law actually shows the need for a new heart. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to fulfill the thing that the law was always calling for, to renew the heart. The thing that the law was always pointing toward, but was powerless to effect. So if Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, how should we approach the law? How should we view the law? That's what I want to spend the next few minutes talking about. We're going to talk about how we should view the law and then how we should view ourselves in relation to the law. So first thing I want you to understand, as we think as New Testament, New Covenant believers about the law of Moses, is this. It's good. The law of Moses is good. This is the overwhelming testimony of the writers of the New Testament. God's law is good. But the goodness of God's law was meant to confront the Israelites with the fact that their hearts weren't good. It was meant to make them like what, Ro- what Paul talks about in Romans 7, go, okay, the law is good and righteous and holy, but I'm not. I can see that this is the right thing to do, but I'm powerless to carry it out. And the way that, point that Paul comes to at the end of Romans 7, he goes, who's going to save me from this body of death? I need a savior. That was the point of the law. The point of the law was to make Israel despair of their self-confidence and throw themselves on the mercy of God. God's point was, you can't do this without me. You need me to do this. The law was good, but their hearts weren't. The second thing the law shows us is that God cares about all of life. He cares about all of life. Now, we need to hear this one because we like to decide what God should care about and what God shouldn't care about, right? We like to decide what's God's business and what's our business. We talk about it as what's sacred and what's secular. What's God's stuff and what's just normal stuff. But the law of Moses blows those compartments out of the water because it shows a God who cares about every aspect of Israel's life and claims authority over every aspect of Israel's life. The way they dressed, the way they cut their hair, the food that they ate, the way that they worked, how they treated their animals, how they cleaned their bodies, how they farmed their fields, how they worked, and how they worshipped. Because those two things were one and the same. All of life was lived as worship to God. All of life was lived under God's good rule. Because the law was ultimately about the mission of God. The law that God gave to Israel wasn't just a matter of guilt and innocence and whether they'd be able to keep it or not and whether they would be approved or separated from God by their obedience. So that's part of it. The law wasn't just about Israel's relationship with God. It was just as much about Israel's relationship with the nations. It was a missionary law. It was a missional law. It was to create a distinct, different group of people who would stand out from all the rest of the nations so that they might relate to all those nations on behalf of God. It was about making God known to the nations. We see this really clearly in a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'm going to put it up on the screen. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses says this. He says, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Go to the next one. 
For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today? The law was about the mission. It was about making God known. But this is also where we see the limitation of the law because as the video showed, the law couldn't change the heart. It, It wasn't designed to do that. So in setting up Israel to be this distinct, different nation among all the other nations in the world, the distinctions that the law creates are external distinctions. This is how you need to look and act and live and operate differently on the outside. Because on the inside, you are no different. On the inside, your hearts are hard. On the inside, your hearts still need to be changed. So dress differently, eat differently, work differently, worship differently. So much of the worship that went on in the tavern, in the temple of, of Israel, it was so very physical and, and, and external, if you will. It was bring these certain animals to offer in these certain ways at these certain times for these certain reasons. And even when you come to the temple, there are certain places you can go and certain places you can't go. And even the few people, the priests, who could go in those other places could only go in those, to those particular places by wearing particular clothes and washing their bodies in particular ways on only on particular times of the year. It was very structured. It was very um, external, if you will. Even the laws that Israel had that dealt with crime and punishment, about how you punish evildoers or you protect victims, it could deal with the actions and the consequences of the actions, but it couldn't get to the root of where those actions came from. It couldn't go down to the level of the thoughts and motivations and disordered loves of our hearts. It was a physical, externally oriented covenant And that's what it was designed to be. Because even as externally oriented as it was, it was always pointing to you need something different to happen on the inside. The law was always pointing to something better. And Jesus came to bring the better. He came to bring the better reality that the law and the prophets were always pointing to. He did it by moving past the external to the internal. That's why as he's talking with the Pharisees, he goes, don't just think about the washing of hands and the eatings of certain kinds of food because it's not the stuff that comes, out from, comes in from the outside that defiles you, but it's what's going on in your heart that needs to change. And that's what Jesus came to address. One of the clearest passages that shows Jesus' intention to go deeper than the law could go is found in Mark chapter 10. Turn there with me if you will really quickly. This is toward the end of Mark's gospel when Jesus is having some conversations with the Pharisees leading up to his crucifixion. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 2, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him a question about divorce. Look at verse 2. The Pharisees came up and in order to test Jesus, asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So Jesus said, okay, we're talking about the law. Well, What did Moses command you? The Pharisees said, well, they said that Moses said that a man is allowed to divorce his wife by writing her a certificate of divorce and sending her away. Just give her the piece of paper that seals the, or breaks the deal, if you will, and send her on her way. But look what Jesus says. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. He wrote you this commandment because your hearts were hard. But from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I've come to see that this passage is talking not just about divorce, but in many ways, Jesus is giving his commentary on the law as a whole, saying, do you understand that there are things in the law that are more addressed to the hardness of your hearts than to what I created you for in the very beginning? Yeah, Moses said that you could write a certificate of divorce and send your wife away, but that wasn't because he wanted you to divorce your wives, but that was to make it so that that woman who you rejected could have proof that she wasn't two-timing, that she wasn't trying to cheat on you, but that you had sent her away and she could come under the care and the provision of someone else. It was more to care for her than because God wanted you to divorce, said it was okay to divorce. And what Jesus says is, gosh, that that was because of the hardness of your hearts, but that's what I've come to address. I've come to move the story forward. I've come to accomplish the purpose of the law. This reminds us that when we look at the law of Moses, we need to set it in its proper place within the story of God. The law of Moses is an indispensable part of the biblical story, but it's not the whole story. It wasn't there in the beginning. And it seems it won't be there in the end. It has a specific purpose for a specific time in the story. It was given to hard-hearted people, but God's plan was never just to manage their hard-heartedness, but to change their hearts. And that's what Jesus came to change, to bring the heart change that the law was always pointing to, to bring us back to, in many ways, what he designed our hearts to do in the beginning to even the way that Paul talks about it in Acts 13 or in Romans 8, to free us from the law, to bring about a freedom that the law couldn't give. And because Jesus has brought about that new covenant, what the New Testament writers continue to tell us is that that means the old covenant is passing away. It's fulfilled its job, and it's fading into the background. Its time in the story has ended. The writers of the New Testament write about it in a way that that almost surprises me. I'm like, really? Like, you're going to put it in that stark of terms? In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul has this whole argument comparing the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And basically what he says is this. The Old Covenant was written on tablets of stone. Remember Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the tablets of stone? And that covenant was glorious. But it's passing away because the New Covenant is even more glorious. It's not just written on tablets of stone, but he said it's written on the tablets of our hearts, just as God promised in Jeremiah chapter 31. It has an even greater glory. It goes to a deeper level. It's written on our hearts. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, the writer of Hebrews says it this way. He says that in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It sounds harsh. It's obsolete. It's old, vanishing away. But here's the thing you need to understand. That's not because there was anything wrong with it. The old covenant is vanishing away, not because there was something wrong with it, but because there was something right with it. It accomplished its purpose. Its purpose has been fulfilled. It was never meant to bring the story to its conclusion. It was always meant to find its fulfillment in Jesus. There's an illustration I've been thinking about a lot this week that, at least to me, really helps to clarify how we're to view the law from from our position in the New Covenant. And it's by thinking about rockets. Can you put that first picture up? 
I, I, as a kid, growing, you know, growing up in the 80s, if you will, man, space shuttle is so cool. I loved space stuff. I was kind of on the back end of that. But I was going to toy stores looking for, like, model rockets, and no one has any anymore. Like, come on, space is still cool, right? But the reason why I think this is so cool, this is the Saturn V rocket that was used throughout the Apollo program that put the man on the moon. This rocket was incredible. I mean, I looked at some specifications on it. It was 363 feet tall. It weighed 6,478,000 pounds. And out of that, just the very top part is where the guys were and the stuff that actually made it to the moon. Just a percentage of it. Does that mean there was some, because there was something wrong with the rest of the rocket? No, as a matter of fact, you needed all of those pounds and all of that fuel and all of that. But you couldn't get all of that to the moon, so it was designed to break apart. There was three stages to the rocket, and each time that the first part ran out of fuel, it would drop off back to Earth, and the next part would take it further, and finally, you just had the part that needed to get to the moon. I love that. I think that's, a, that's an apt picture for us when we think about the, the law of Moses, because what happens is this. If, if you're an astronaut sitting, if you're Neil or Buzz or Michael going on that first mission to the moon— and you're, you're going along, and they're saying, hold on, hold on, the, the, the part of the rocket's not breaking off. Oh, no, it's okay. I really want to bring it with me. I just want to have the whole group together. No, 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 no. Seriously, you're not going to get there with all that weight. You've got to drop it. In that way, as each section of the rocket dropped off, it meant that it was working properly, that each section had fulfilled its purpose. And I think that's how we need to view the law. It was good. It shows us that all of life matters to God. It was a missional covenant. It was about making God known, but it couldn't change the heart. So it was always pointing to something better. It was meant to get us off the launch pad, but it was never meant to get us to the moon. Jesus, though, he has fulfilled that law, and the Holy Spirit is changing hearts. Things are working properly. Things are going according to plan. So now the law of Moses has become obsolete. It is dropping away. Because the purpose of it has been fulfilled. What does that mean for us? Actually, uh, you can take that picture down now. What does that mean for us? How should we view ourselves in relationship to the law of Moses? Well, I think one part's obvious. We're not under that law anymore. We are not under the old covenant anymore, but the new covenant. Even if you are ethnically Jewish, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are headed where this story's going, not where it used to be. This doesn't mean that how we live no longer matters as long as we just believe in Jesus. As a matter of fact, I would say how we live matters more now because our hearts have been made new, because the Holy Spirit has given us new hearts and new power to obey God. But it does mean that our obedience is not just to the law of Moses, but to Jesus, the one who fulfills the law of Moses. This doesn't mean that there's absolutely no connection between the old, old Covenant and the New Covenant because they are inseparably linked together. But it does mean that there's not complete continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. A lot of times Bible scholars, they use those words in talking about this. Continuity and discontinuity, which is basically a way of saying what themes continue across the story and which ones change or end or, or transition. There's change, there's movement, there's development as we go through the story. Some parts of it do end. Like we saw in Acts chapter 10, the dietary laws are no more. 
Jesus, God said, what I have made clean, do not call unclean. Those have been fulfilled, and they don't, we don't need them anymore. So dietary laws end, but some things continue, like the prohibition of idolatry, which we'll find out about in a second when we look back at, at Acts 15. Many things just change. They morph. They transition. For instance, the Old Covenant was very focused on a specifically, specific part of, of the map, the land of Israel. The New Covenant, though, has the entire globe within its purview. Many things change. For instance, you could be born into the Old Covenant. If you were born into an Israelite family, you were part of that covenant by birth. The New Covenant's different, though. You have to be born again into this covenant, as Jesus talked about with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And that has really practical ramifications for even just the way that we raise our kids as New Covenant believers. We're not raising them as though they're already a part of this covenant, but we're raising them because we want them to know the gospel and believe in Jesus so that they can be a part of it. That, I would say, is also what a lot of the conversation about infant baptism versus believer's baptism and all of that's wrapped up in. It's, It's a wrestle with what does it look like to live in the new covenant? Where is their continuity? Where is their discontinuity? What does it mean to live our part of the story? And again, my point today has been to to frame that conversation for us so that we can keep having it. We need to continue to have these discussions. What does it mean to live in our part of the story, but driven by where the story's already been? We need to learn our part. That's why everybody got together in Acts chapter 15. So let's look back at there briefly, and let's see, what do they decide? What point do they come to? Look at verse 13. In verse 13, we have a new guy stepping up. It's a guy named James. This isn't the apostle who was killed by the sword in chapter 12 because, well, he was killed by the sword in chapter 12. But this is, uh, as we learn later, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, who it seems early on did not believe in Jesus, but later did come to believe that his half-brother was the son of God sent to save the world. And out of that, he becomes very quickly a leader, an elder within the church at Jerusalem. So in Acts chapter 15, verse 13, here's what he says. He stands up and he says this. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, referring to Simon Peter, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. This is what the Old Testament was pointing to. It's found its fulfillment. And he quotes from Amos. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. This is where the story's always been pointing. Verse 19, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who who turn to God. We shouldn't trouble them. We shouldn't trouble them with the old covenant. We shouldn't trouble them with circumcision and keeping the law. But, verse 20 says this, we should write to them to abstain from things that are polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So, we don't want to trouble them with the commands, but here's four. Okay, so things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, things that have been strangled, and blood. Why those four? Were these the pet peeves, like James things? that I just, These ones just bug me, so since I'm in control, can I just make them do it? 
Did they just kind of close their eyes and just like flip through the scroll and go, make them do that one and that one? And where do these four come from? Here's, I think, I've, I've studied a lot about this, and here's where I think uh, the best explanation I've come to. The first one, the first command that he gives is the heading under which the other ones fit. He says they need to abstain from things that are polluted by idols, or, or you can say it more broadly, the pollution of idolatry, sexual morality, things that have been strangled, and blood. Uh, each one of those other things were kind of part and parcel to the pagan idolatrous practices that went on in the different idol temples throughout the Roman Empire. So basically what James is saying here is he's saying, you don't have to be Jewish, but you can't remain a pagan idolater either. Like, you don't need to take on the law of Moses, but you need to leave behind. You've become new. You have new allegiances. Jesus is now your king, and so therefore you need to renounce those old allegiances. You may need to make a clean break from it. That's what repentance is. It's bringing more and more of our life under the rule of Jesus, leaving behind the things that used to drive us and finding more and more of our identity in him. So it's about identity. Those commands are about be who you are now. You don't have to be Jewish, but you can't be pagan idolaters. But there's also a bigger point to it. Look what he says in verse 21. James says, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What's he talking about here? I think at this point what James is saying is, going, look, you don't have to be Jews, but you can't be pagan idolaters either, and you're carrying this gospel even farther. And remember, every town that you go into, in every major city of the empire, there's a Jewish settlement there, and there's a synagogue. So what he's basically saying is this. As you go out and evangelize the Gentiles, don't forget about the Jews too. Don't forget about the Jewish people too. Our mission is to reach them too. What James is saying right here at the end is this. You're not pagan idolaters anymore. You don't have to be Jews, but you are missionaries. You are a missional people. Don't forget that missional identity. I would say that that, that idea of mission, of witness, is one of the biggest areas of continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, the people of, God, people of Israel were God's missionary people. They represented Him to the nations. But now the church, as the New Covenant community, we have taken on that missionary identity. And we are now, as we talked about last week, the ambassadors for God, even to the Old Covenant people. You, he's saying you need to leave behind that pagan idolatry because you're God's people now, and you're his representatives of the world, including the Jewish people. In the rest of the chapter, basically what we have is they, they put together a letter with this same decision in it, and they send it back with Paul and Barnabas to Antioch. And in verse 31, we find out that when the Gentiles read it and they found out, wow, we don't have to take on this whole law of Moses, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. This is a decisive moment in the book of Acts. Had they said, no, they've got to become Jews too. I don't know where the story would have gone. It wouldn't have been where God wanted it to go. But we see at this moment, this is the turning point where now it's not about the Gentiles coming in as Jewish people, but both Jews and Gentiles united as this new covenant people of God. This is huge. And if you've never looked at this passage before, I hope that even just today you, you sit there and go, wow, this, I'm glad they decided what they decided because that's how the gospel reached us. Now, in closing, let me just give you a few points of application. Actually, just mainly one point. What do we do with this? 
Read your Old Testament. Read the Old Testament. I would say that an understanding of the fact that we're not under that covenant anymore, but we've been brought into the new covenant should give us greater reason to study it rather than less. Why? Let me give you a couple reasons. Number one, because it's our family history. This is where we came from. We've been written into this story. We should feel a close connection to it because we're part of it now. We should read our Old Testament because it's family history. Second, because it's a story of grace. Just like what God's done in our lives, the Old Testament is a story of grace. And if you don't believe me, you need to read the Old Testament again. If you struggle with thinking that the God of the Old Testament is angry and judgmental, but the God of the New Testament is loving and forgiving, you need to read the story again. If you think that the Old Testament is all about works, but the New Testament's all about grace, you need to read the story again. It's never been about the works that we do. It's always been about God's ability to work even through rebellious and sinful people to accomplish his purpose. That's what it's always been about. The themes and the rhythms of that story continue even today. There's a lot of change in the story, but the character of God doesn't change. His character is the same from Genesis to Revelation. Even if the specific ways in which he calls us to reflect that character do change. Third, this. We need to know the Old Testament because we need to know how to live our part of the story. We need to know our role in the story. At whatever point you were woven into God's story, it is imperative upon you to understand what happened before you. Not so that you can pretend like you're still living in it. It's not like we need to go back and have like an old covenant experience. This is what it's like to slaughter a goat. No. It's, it's like people who do civil war reenactments. It's like, okay, that's good, but that was a little while ago now, right? We're not reenactors of the old covenant, but we are called to live in light of it. I would say it's much more like the common practice on TV shows nowadays where they, at the beginning of every episode there's a previously on and then they show you clips of things that happened before. And the whole reason is to set the context for what's about to happen. That's the way we should look at the Old Testament. Okay, let's set the context for the part that we're supposed to play. And lastly, it's this. We should understand our Old Testaments because it is the best way to reach our Jewish friends and family that don't, that don't know Jesus. We are God's missional people now. We have brought into this new covenant. And that means we are his ambassadors, even to Jewish people who do not believe in him. For the most part throughout history, the majority of Jewish people have, have failed to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And even though there is so much spiritual blindness and hardness of heart going on in that that the Bible even talks about, I also think we just have to be honest with the fact that oftentimes our ignorance of Israel's story presents some of the biggest obstacles to Jewish people even considering Jesus as Messiah. It's like, how can you tell me that Jesus is the fulfillment of my people's story when you don't even know my people's story? Oftentimes we go in and, and we're even ignorant of the heinous things that have been done to Jewish people by people claiming to be followers of Jesus. Sometimes we need to realize the baggage that even a word like Christian has. I've had to wrestle with that. That's my own name. I, was, I, was, I did a semester in Israel when I was in college, and one of our classes was taught by a, a Jewish man who was a believer in Jesus. And the very first day of class, the entire discussion was, hey, while you're here in Israel, you shouldn't call yourself a Christian. 
And us 28, like, like, like American, like, like students, and especially me, that, that's my name, bro. I don't have a choice. <laughs> we were rustling, going, no, that's who I am. And he's going, no, no, you need to understand the way that that lands upon your hearers when you talk with them. That will stop the conversation before it even gets started. He said, he told, he said, while you're here, call yourself a follower of Yeshua. You're a follower of Jesus. But even just sometimes the way that we talk about that. What this means is that if we are to fulfill that purpose of being the witnesses of God, even to the Jewish people, we need a lot of grace and humility and patience. We need to, like we talked about last week, we need to listen long. We need to resonate with their frustrations and their hopes. And we need to pray. Pray that God would open their eyes. That Jesus, who they've missed for so long, is the very one they're looking for. Because the story... If you continue the story, what it shows us is that God's not done with the Jewish people. He's not. The amazing thing that we read about in Romans chapter 11, Paul talks about how there is a partial hardening that's happened amongst the majority of Jewish people so that the gospel would go out to the Gentiles. Now, the gracious thing of God is that throughout history, in every generation, there are many hundreds and thousands of Jewish people who one by one recognize Jesus as Messiah and follow him. And some of you are here today, and I love it when I get to meet brothers and sisters in Christ who were part of this story way before we were. That is so cool. But the reality is so many people still reject him. But the hope of Romans 11 is that one day, Paul says, when the fullness of the Gentiles has been brought in, God will open the eyes of the Jewish people that are alive at that time. And as a whole, they will see, they will recognize that Jesus is the Messiah that they've always been looking for. As we look forward to that day, as we look forward to the day when God in his grace will weave the Jewish people back into this story, we need to realize we've already been woven in. We've already been brought in. We've been called into this story right now. We are God's missional people. We have been called into this new covenant. We are now those who, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are being changed from the inside out. We're going to sing that song in just a second. About how now, because of what Jesus has done, we can worship and love God from the inside out. And the other thing that's crazy is that this new covenant gives us so much adaptability. You guys might remember a year or so ago when we were going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We got to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul basically says, look it, the gospel has made me free from all those things that held me back before. But even though I'm free from everything to follow Jesus, I am making myself a servant of all that I might reach them. He goes, to the Jew, I still become as a Jew so that I might reach them. To those under the law, I become like one under the law. Not that I'm under the law, but so that I might reach them. To those outside the law, I become like them. To the weak, I become weak. And his whole point is he says, I can become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. That's the kind of adaptability that we have. So that's why we wrap our minds around this so that we can play the part that God's given us to play. We can come into any setting, any culture at any time, even the culture of those still living under the old covenant, and we can learn how to become all things to all people so that we might save some. That's who we are. That's our part in the story. Does that make sense? All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, this was a lot. This is something I know that I've tried to wrap my head around for years, and I, I'm still learning. I feel like I'm trying to hold too much water in a bucket, and it's sloshing all over the place. But Lord, this is, this is big, and it's important. And would you help us, Lord God? 
Would you help us to, to not overcomplicate things, but not oversimplify things easier either? Lord, would you enable us by your spirit to see the big picture, to see the way that you've worked, to see your character throughout the story, that we might reflect your character in the part of the story you've given us to play. And I ask this in your name, trusting in the new heart reality that your Holy Spirit is doing within us. Would you make us servants of all that we might win people to you? We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.